Sometimes when good news comes, people still get left behind. Like when the Emancipation Proclamation had taken place. Uh, surely everyone's heard of that. You're free now, right? Well, somehow it didn't reach Texas. We, we've, we've heard this story, right? Uh, did they kill the messenger? Uh, did the slaveholders withhold the information? It actually took Union General Gordon Granger marching into Galveston, Texas on June 19 of 1865 to let the slaves know that two and a half years ago they'd been set free officially. You're, you're no longer slaves. You're actually employees now worthy of wages. By law, all those slaves were free. But in practice, uh, and for many years to come, they were still terrorized by violence and segregation. And those former slaves then created a, a holiday they called simply June the 19th, and then they shortened it, right, to Juneteenth. And it's considered another Emancipation Day. The good news, the, the change, the, the, the freedom that has been a struggle to obtain. But not, not just a freedom in Texas now, it's gone all the way to the Senate and, and, they're, and to, into the Congress, and now they're discussing a, a federal holiday, right? Uh, last week when we explored Peter's sermon, we looked at the news of Jesus that had to be re-presented again, so that if you missed it, times of refreshing are available. True, true restoration, true freedom is now available through Jesus. Did you miss that? It's been, it's been announced. It's an all call. Uh, ignorance has kept you trapped in the past uh, in your sin and in your rebellion, but you can be set free through Jesus. You can be set free through Jesus. In our passage today, Peter and John, the same ones that healed the, the man, uh, get in trouble. And and they're in trouble because they're preaching in the temple and the authorities are getting stressed out. Well, so why is that? Why, why, would, why would the temple authorities, the ruling class, be upset by that? Isn't that the coolest thing ever? A healing takes place in our temple. Sell tickets, you know, come. How, how could that be a problem? Well, Peter is calling them out, but he was also calling them up. He was calling them out because they had participated in the killing of the author of life. But they're being also called up because they didn't have to live in the deep, dark shame of that. Their Emancipation Day was presented to them again. So let's, let's look at what happened and hear Peter's second sermon uh, as, he, as he shares with them um, no, this is what you really need to understand. And it's going to come out of Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. Let me read it to you. And then I'd like to present some comments and, and maybe we can find some, some real help for today as well. So it says in Acts chapter 4, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. 
And when they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known. Let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Pretty powerful stuff. In the midst of a trial, he comes out with this, this bold proclamation. So, again, why were the leaders of the temple annoyed? Why were they saying no more of this Jesus? No more talk of the resurrection. I mean, wouldn't it be exciting to know? I mean, if you're a spiritual leader in, in the city, wouldn't it be exciting to know that God was alive and well? That he had come in, in to, to restore all things and turn them right side up. Doesn't that seem amazing? That through Jesus, God was accomplishing his rescue plan for humans. Re-establishing his reign on earth. That's exciting. Well, not, not if you're in power. We don't want the Emancipation Proclamation getting out among the people. We don't want our system overturned or to, to be placed under the foot of those who followed the one we rejected and condemned and had crucified. Tom Wright says it's, it's significant that it was the leaders of the temple hierarchy and, and certainly the Sadducees who were so angry with Peter and John. The Sadducees were Jewish aristocrats. And they, they, the aristocracy included the high priest and his family. And for, for quite a while, they had wielded their power in Jerusalem among the Jewish people throughout. And they guarded the central shrine, the most holy place in Judaism. Tom Wright says, It's the place where for a thousand years the one true God has promised to meet with his people. They oversaw the sacrificial system by which this God had promised to maintain and restore fellowship with his people. And just as a spinoff, of course, kind of a minor thing, they exercised great power economically, socially, and politically. Remember, it was the the high priest and his entourage that would do business with the Roman government. They had troops and the temple police and, and they could move the people around and do what they wanted. They could start things or stop things happening in and around the temple. And it's this group, the Sadducees, later, later we learn that they don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was actually the first sign that, that God was remaking the world with a new humanity, right? A, a new people of God, and that he would ultimately 
restore all things. That's, that's the resurrection, to make all things new. So looking toward this new creation, where everything would be turned upside down. Jesus is the first of that, the first fruits from the grave. And, and the rest of us will, will follow who follow Jesus. And then the earth will be remade. Systems will be overturned. And that's not exciting news for those in power, is it? Uh, hardly ever do those who hold the authority um, appreciate the upstarts, appreciate the, the, the prophecy of something being overturned. But about 5,000, we look at verse 4, about 5,000 of the men, uh, new men and, and their families did believe in the resurrection. And if you add that to the 120 and then the 3,000 that, that believed at Pentecost, and then the daily that were being um, added uh, daily numbers being added, then and then you've got another 5,000. This is a big group of people in the center of Jerusalem. There's, there's new power, there's new boldness, new courage, new authority. But what does it mean that they, they believed in his name? Isn't, isn't that what it says here? Many of those who had heard the word believed, and, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And then the rulers and scribes gathered. They called a, a council. They threw him in jail overnight and threw a council together of all these leaders. Well, what are we going to do? And so they, they sit, uh, probably stand Peter and John in the midst and ask them, by what power or by what name did you do this? What name? Well, now think about this. Do you remember Jesus was asked the same thing? When he was casting out demons, what did they say? Well, I think you're just casting out demons by the devil himself. And Jesus, of course, would say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that the devil would cast out devils. But they were really curious. And, and uh, Jesus said, you're in an untenable situation. If you think that I, by the power of the devil, am throwing out demons, then you are lost. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, how, how could you be saved from something like that if you believe that my power comes from the devil. And now they're asking Peter and John the same thing. By what power do you think um, this has come? Uh, you know, what, what name? And so Peter speaks up. Verse 8, uh, if you're following along, he's, he starts to speak. Now, now if, you're, if you're Satan, if you're the devil, um, it's a safe bet to threaten Peter with imprisonment. It's a safe bet. I mean, that guy, you remember what happened last time. Peter was in this very compound, right? Jesus was on trial. Peter was outside denying Jesus, denying that he even knew him. He bailed on the Messiah. He bent under the slightest pressure. There was a, there was a servant girl who was like, wait, I know you. You're, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he swears up and down, I never knew him. So it's a pretty safe bet that Peter's going to, bend under this trial, right? He's going he's gonna to break. This is it. But it says, Now Peter, <laughs> filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he finds his courage. For you, I need to ask, are you the one who's had a hard time speaking up about Jesus? If left to your own power, would you kind of cower in fear as well? Well, thanks be to God that he hasn't left us alone, right? 
He hasn't left us in our own power, to our own devices. Jesus anticipated this. And he said, you're going to be brought before rulers and brought before authorities. They're going to ask you all kinds of questions, but don't even worry. You don't even have to prepare. I will give you the words by my spirit. So Peter, filled with the spirit, begins to just pour this speech out. And you can be filled with the spirit too. Uh, we were actually commanded as followers of Jesus to be filled with the Spirit. So, so if Jesus is, is commanding you to be filled with the Spirit and you ask him to be filled with the Spirit, do you think he's going to answer that? Yeah, because any prayer in his name is going to be answered. And so you could say that right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you fill me with your Spirit? Yeah, he, and he will. He will. So Peter goes on to say, and, and he says, you know, if we're being examined concerning a good deed and, and how this has happened, I, I just want you to know this man was made whole, healed, uh, which is the same uh, word as, as saved. So he's, he's made whole. He's saved by the name of Jesus, <laughs> your Messiah and mine, whom you crucified. It's clear that God uh, reversed your decision of crucifixion and raised Jesus from the dead. This healing and saving comes from the same root. It's salvation is, is wholeness, it's restoration, it's inclusion, it's healing. I think a lot of us come to the text going, how can we be saved? How can we be saved? And in our mind, it's like, how do we go to heaven when we die? But it's such a, a, a simplistic question that, that avoids this the beauty of this sense of, of wholeness, restoration, times of refreshing, this being saved now and certainly being saved later when when God comes to restore all things. But but the salvation is a is a wholeness. And he says this, I think it's beautiful. I, I don't know if you, you caught this, but they're quoting back from Psalm um, 118, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Well, what does that, what does that mean? Well, the cornerstone or, or capstone um, is probably likely what's being uh, referred to here. The stone that you builders rejected. You know, can you can imagine this? Just imagine with me, you're, you're building a wall. And you want to get the square ones down here and you set that one, set that one. And, and then you're starting, you're starting to build up and you realize that this, this doesn't, it's not going to fit. This, is, this isn't going to work. And so you set it aside. But as you start to build the wall, you realize there's a gap for this. That this kind of wonky stone, this doesn't really, it didn't really fit our expectation of what I needed. But now it actually fits right here. Maybe in the, the keystone of the arch the capstone that actually holds this whole thing together. You overlooked it, <laughs> but God uh, knew what he was doing. Uh, the, 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 the capstone that, that is Jesus holds the whole thing together. We know that in Christ, all things hold together. And then he says, this, isn't this beautiful? Verse 12, there's, there's healing, wholeness, salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Can you repeat that with me? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
And oh, we want to be saved, right? We want to be saved. We want to be restored. We want to be healed. And I want to address that issue of salvation because it's basically what everybody wants to know about when they look at the book. They, they crack the Bible open and they're like, okay, how do I get whole? How do I get rescued? How do I get saved? I'm lost. I'm hurting. I'm broken. I've destroyed my life or, or whatever. I want to know how do I get saved. And so if you look in the Old Covenant, we or the Old Testament, you know, or the New Covenant, the New Testament, salvation was a gift by grace in response to faith. So in the Old Covenant and New, salvation was a gift of grace. Gift grace means gift in response to faith. <laughs> wait, you say you say wait, I thought I thought in the Old Testament they had to work really hard to be saved. Well, often they went through the motions without their hearts being in it. That's right. And they were called out for doing the works of the law without the love for their God. But, but did they work hard to be saved? Well, let's think about the big picture. And, and this, is, this has been critical for me as I think about this. They were rescued, saved, uh, became a people during the exodus from Egypt, right? Okay, they weren't God's people, um, they didn't know God, they were worshiping other gods, uh, but they were, were saved, uh, some, in some ways almost against their will. They were rescued, right, and brought out, saved as a people during the exodus from Egypt. Before they had even acknowledged Yahweh as their God, they were rescued. That's interesting. Yahweh has initiated the relationship with them by grace. And they had to respond, of course, in kind with believing loyalty. But they became a people. So Yahweh initiates the relationship and then he tells them how to be his people and he gives them his commands. They were to forsake all other gods. You know the Ten Commandments or you can remember them. You know, forsake all other gods and then love him with their whole heart and, and love others as well. Maintain believing loyalty to be his people and to be an agent of God's blessing to the entire world. So the law wasn't how they achieved salvation. It was how they showed their loyalty. Right? They were they were saved and rescued and became a people, but then they were they were told how to then show your loyalty to him. So so salvation isn't about doing everything right to keep God happy. It's, it, it can't be that, or he would be a very unhappy God. But the truth is, God is full of life and love and joy. He's the giver of love, the giver of life, the giver of joy. And our loyalty to him is what, is what matters, even through the errors. How many errors? You got, you got some errors? I got errors. Outbursts? Yeah. Bad decisions? Even rebellion against his commands? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the most famous people in the Bible is King David. They're called a man after God's own heart. He's, this is the David that defied the gods of Goliath and, and raised up the name of Yahweh. He also killed lots and lots of people, including some of his friends. In one really bad series, he got trapped in lust for his friend's wife, got her pregnant, and then had his friend killed in his final attempt to cover it up. And he had consequences to be sure, but God was merciful because David never wavered from his loyalty to Yahweh. It wasn't about just his 
personal sins and his personal difficulties, he maintained his loyalty to Yahweh. He didn't switch gods like so many other of the kings. Mike Heiser says that other kings of Israel and Judah were tossed aside and, and both kingdoms were sent into exile because they worshipped other gods. Personal failure, even of the worst kind, didn't send the nation into exile. Choosing other gods did. And now God has revealed himself in Jesus, right? No other name. Jesus is the center of the focus for salvation. In Jesus' name, we are saved. Believing loyalty is now placed in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Faith, as we learned last week, is a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities, right? Matthew Bates told us that. So faith, believing loyalty, isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So we're saved by grace through faith. And then we live our lives out in his name. Believing loyalty is placed in Jesus, allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so today I just want us to focus on a few things. You can find life in his name. Wholeness, healing, life that is truly life in his name. There's three things I want to focus on uh, and, then, and then a fourth that's, that's a big one. Um, in Jesus' name we are family. In his name, right? John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he's given them the right to become the children of God. United with the Trinity, given a share in the Father's business, partnering with God to pour out his love and serve the world, serve, serve humans, but animals, all, all of creation, to have life in his name. In Jesus' name, we also find purpose. Purpose. Colossians 3, 16 through 17 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Purpose found in every moment that we do. This is how we do it. We do it to honor Jesus. We do it in Jesus' name. So in Jesus' name, we're family. In Jesus' name, we find purpose. In Jesus' name, we find meaning. Meaning. In, th in the smallest things, into the, the smallest decisions, Jesus pours meaning. If we're filled with the Spirit, my, my serving, my loving, my smiles, my words become a meaningful part of of the kingdom. In the midst of, of a controversy in Rome among different Christians, Christians were struggling whether they should eat meat that came from a marketplace where they were sacrificed to pagan idols. Paul, uh, one of the early Christian leaders we'll learn about later in the book of Acts, says, make sure what you're doing and, and what you're celebrating is done in, in faith, done in believing loyalty to Jesus, and stop worrying about the details. Romans 14.6 says, uh, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord in his name. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. We, we give thanks to God. And, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So we have to make sure that what we're, we're doing, everything that we're doing, allow, we allow the meaning to be poured into it by Jesus by doing it in his name. 
one of the one of the uh, church fathers, John Chrysostom, um, a great preacher, uh, you know, just hundreds of years after Jesus, um, says, "Do you eat? Well, give thanks to God both before and afterward. Do you sleep? Give thanks to God both before and afterward. Do you launch into the marketplace? Do the same. There's nothing worldly, nothing of this life. Do all in the name of the Lord." and all will be prospered to you. On wherever the name is placed, the name of Jesus, there all things are auspicious, favorable, right? If it casts out devils, if it drives away diseases, much more does it render business easy. So whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. That's where you're going to find meaning in the day-to-day, meaning in the everyday life. So in Jesus' name, we are a family. We find purpose and find meaning in the everyday stuff of life. But also in Jesus' name, we forsake other gods. And you may be thinking, well, great, I'm safe because I, uh, I don't believe in other gods. Uh, but it's trickier than that. It's trickier than that. Yeah, in, in Israel, when, when they would pursue other gods, it was, it was pretty obvious. They would bow down to idols and they would bow down and worship in, in temples and do all those things. Yahweh would say of them in Jeremiah chapter 2, Be appalled, O heavens, at this be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They forsake, forsake the living water and dig mud puddles. Mike Heiser says, believing the gospel means that believing that the God of Israel came to earth as a man, voluntarily died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, rose again on the third day. And so we embrace that faith and then show our loyalty to Jesus by forsaking all other gods. Regardless of what those other gods may say about salvation, the Bible tells us there is no salvation in any other name than Jesus, and, and we must maintain our believing loyalty. Now, it's not about personal failures. That's not the same thing as trading Jesus for another God, and God can tell the difference. So think about this with me. Who do we call on to save us? Where, where are those mud puddles we go to? How are we susceptible to worshiping other gods or worshiping idols, other other saviors? How would I know if I was relying on another God or drinking from the mud puddles instead of from the fountain of life? So I want to explore this idea with you. Uh, it's kind of the last big idea uh, of functional saviors. Functional saviors. Jerry Bridges defines functional saviors in, in this way. He says, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence that we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, significance, because we hold a, an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They make us feel good. Um, they, they preoccupy our mind and consume our time and resources. Some, sometimes they can even make us feel righteous. But whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. So who or what 
do you depend on more than God? That's, these are the questions we need to ask ourselves. To what do you turn for refreshing, to find peace, healing, wholeness, restoration? What do you look to, to save you? Save me from this, this problem I'm facing. Save me from ever having anybody ever call me that again, you know? I remember a young man I used to mentor. He was just like, I will never be called poor. He grew up in a poor family. I will never be poor. So his work ethic, his, his quest for money has become an, an idol <laughs> because I will never be called that again. It's become a, a savior because that's the worst thing he could imagine happening to him. Here's a, here's a pro tip. No extra charge. Let the computer algorithms diagnose you. What do you mean, Aaron? What do you mean? Well, look at the products you're being pitched. Look at the ads that pop up. <laughs> Facebook and Google have analyzed you and want to sell you a savior. They do. They're saying to me, Aaron's feeling lonely. Um, send him some friend invites or ads for companionship. Yikes. Aaron's feeling weak and, and doesn't really feel like he's feeling very powerful. So um, send him some fitness ads because fitness will come to the rescue. If he just pumps up, then he can really own it. You know, he could, he could look, to, look to his well-being in that regard. Um, obviously, uh, obviously, Aaron could use some more health tips, some food suggestions, outdoor exploration gear. That'll rescue him from his issues, right? Aaron can lean on those. They can be his savior. So there's a pro tip. Look at the ads that are being pitched to you. They may know you better than you know yourself, which is kind of scary. But I want you to think about where does your ultimate identity come from? Are you chasing glory, security, comfort, some ideal picture of yourself that you, you probably will never reach? Scripture is clear about this, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. But we forsake him all the time. We turn to to these things that are good things, but they become ultimate things. And we think that they're going to satisfy us. We believe the lie that, that there is another name by which we can be saved, feel whole, feel complete. There is another name, we think, that, that can give us our identity and, and give us purpose and meaning. Pastor Tim Keller is helpful with another pro tip. He says, a good way to discern um, this is how you respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes. If you ask for something you don't get, you, you could be sad and disappointed. Then you go on and say, hey, life's not over. I didn't get that. Those aren't your functional saviors, your functional masters. But when you pray and you work for something and you don't get it, and then you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, I think you might have found your real God. <laughs> right? This is the worst. I can't believe it. And so here's a list of some idols, and I want to finish with this. Um, I've noticed many of these things. Um, relational idols, idols, your spouse, your children, your friends, or even your enemies can become a relational idol. If I look to Heather, my wife, to be my emotional center, to be the thing and to, to, to focus everything on her, she becomes an idol. And that's way too much pressure for her. There, there are also religious idols, moralism or legalism, right? We say, okay, that's the structure that's going to work and everybody else needs to do it. And then we become judgmental and, and critical as well because they didn't follow our God. 
sexual idols, pornography, um, unrealistic ideals for physical beauty, uh, an unhealthy interest in sexuality outside of marriage. Yeah, um, including, including any other perversions of, of sexuality, of course. Political idols, making political, un, any political ideology the answer. This is the way. This is what will save us. This is what will rescue us. It's the new religion in America, politics. Comfort idols. Tim Keller goes on. He says, you know, this is living for pleasure, sacrificing everything for a certain quality of life. I will sacrifice my kids. I will sacrifice my relationships for this. Whoa. <laughs> Approval idols. This is what I'm facing. Uh, people pleasing, the fear of man. Uh, trying to get, get applause or whatever, or, or any other idols that you place ultimate value on. You take a good thing, it's become an ultimate thing. And we need to say, we need, we need to just say, Jesus, you have the answer. You are the one who gives me, makes me family, gives me purpose, gives me meaning, right? And I will forsake all other idols for you. I want to, I want to live my life in your name. So let's do what we talked about last week. Let's repent obey and worship repent obey worship say wow i've been looking in the wrong place i've been looking to um, other people other things for satisfaction and security and now i need to repent of that obey the gospel and turn to jesus and do that over and over and over again like we talked about last week to row repent obey worship row repent obey worship row and it's going to be upstream right upstream uh, with keeping our eyes on Jesus. So let's just declare together what we talked about earlier. No salvation right, in anyone else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.